Seeking for the help of the Lord, I direct your prayerful attention to the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 15, and reading for our text, verse 34. We have one of our free Bibles, that's page 940, 940. The Gospel according to Mark, chapter 15, and verse 34. This is the account of the crucifixion of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. And verse 34 reads, And at the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And it is particularly the the last clause, the interpretation, the question. We continue our series this evening on questions asked in Scripture. And of the seven sayings of our Lord and Saviour upon the cross, this is the one that is a question. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken When our Lord was crucified, his first utterance was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then we have the answer to the dying thief, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And the Lord said to him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, this day shalt thou be with me in paradise. The third saying was when our Lord spoke to his mother, Mary, and said, Woman, behold thy son. And then he spoke to John, the disciple John, and said, Behold, thy mother. Then we have the fourth saying where our Lord utters this, our text, the question, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This was followed then by I thirst, then it is finished, And then lastly, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. This is the only saying that is a question. I want to, this evening, in looking at answering this question, considering it, I think firstly of the time and the setting when this question was asked. And then secondly, to ask a question of ourselves, and that is, had his father really forsaken him? And then lastly, the answer to this question My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But firstly, the time and setting. Our Lord asked many questions during his ministry. Some were when he was on the mountain, some in the temple, asking them of the disciples, asking them of the Jews and those that were around about him. The setting was in his ministry, a very different setting than the one that is here. We should always think with ourselves as well. When we have questions, when we have things that are really trying us, to ask ourselves, what is the setting? Where are we? What is the outward circumstances? What are the inward circumstances? Because surely 
it does have a tremendous bearing on how we are feeling, what we are experiencing, and what comes from our lips, is coming from our heart, is to what the, the actual setting is. So the picture here is our Lord has been brought from the judgment hall. He had had his back whipped. The plowers, we read in Psalm 129, have plowed upon my back. In great weakness and in agony, brought to bear his cross, and Simon the Cyrenian to bear it after him to the place of crucifixion, then nailed to the cross. And then the cross brought upright, and there crucified and hung up above the earth. I, if I be lifted up above the earth, will draw all men unto me. And while this was happening, all of his disciples, they had forsaken him and fled. Those that were passing by were mocking him. Even the thieves, both of them at first and then just one, were casting the same things in his teeth. And all of this outward, great agony, great trial. And then it comes to uh, the sixth hour. Already he had spent three hours upon the cross. And then there came a darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. For three hours, a thick darkness over all of the earth. And it is at the end of this time that our Lord then utters these words just before. Then he declares it is finished and commends his spirit into the hand of of his father. The great agonies of his body, very real outward agonies. We can describe them, we can imagine them, we can picture them, we cannot know by personal experience of the agony that he was going through. But what is shown in this question, in this cry, is an agony not a body, but a soul. We would remember our Lord is truly God and truly man. It's very easy for us to think, well, because he was divine, because he was God, then that would alleviate all of his sufferings. They wouldn't be so bad is what you and I would have, even in a physical way. And as he is truly God, then truly he wouldn't, why would he feel any separation? Because he is the true eternal God. And it's easy for us to think along those lines when we do not realise the distinct separation between the two natures of our Lord. One person, his divine nature, his human nature, and that human nature, body and soul. And so we have sufferings of body and of soul. His divinity could not suffer. His divinity could not cry out in this way. But as a real man, as God manifest in the flesh, as those that were looking on him and beholding him and seeing him as a man, they saw him suffer and he did really suffer. And this then of the question is looking not at the outward but the inward. You might say with the thieves that were crucified with him that no doubt because that was a practice of the Romans, they had been scourged as well. Their outward agonies would have been the same. In fact, we might say worse, because our Lord, when he yielded up his breath, as yet 
for he never had his bones broken, and the spear was after he had died. Whereas the dying thieves had their legs broken while they were alive to hasten their death. So you could reason in a natural way that his physical sufferings were not as bad as those that he was crucified with. But it is what he was accomplishing, what he was doing, what he was enduring, not only physically, but in his soul. Man has sinned and man's sin has affected both our bodies and our souls. For our souls, we are now spiritually dead by nature. We cannot know the things of God. The natural man receiveth not the things of God, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. We are dead, spiritually dead. We must be born again. But we are also under the curse with our bodies. We must die, and in all our afflictions, all our sicknesses, and everything that comes from being in a fallen body, a body that also must be redeemed. And at last we shall, those that are found in Christ and redeemed by him upon this cross, they shall be in heaven, complete body and soul, soul and spirit, the complete being, our death, the soul immediately returns to God that gave it. This is very evident with the dying thief that this day shalt thou be with me in paradise. His body was still hanging up on the tree. But that same day his soul was to be with Christ. And you get then a picture of the, the soul and the body of man and that is so with our Lord. So his sufferings were in soul and in body, and what he was then enduring here upon the cross, we are looking at the sufferings of his soul, and what he is going through in his soul, hidden. All of those that were going past, they couldn't see it, couldn't know it, didn't know it, but it's set before us here, and I felt with the question tonight, how many times have we really considered it? How many times we have read over this and not thought, well, could we answer that question? Could we really know the reason why God hath forsaken him or why he is feeling that in that way? So we think then of the whole circumstances where this question is being asked the darkness over the earth and just before our Lord is to yield up his spirit to his Father. I want to look then secondly and ask this question, had his Father really forsaken him? You might say, well, as God, he must only say, that which is true. If he says, Thou hast forsaken me, then his father had forsaken him. What is certainly true is the experience of it. He felt that. And that is what the Church of God also feels. If we were to go to Isaiah 49. Then we have the church saying, Zion saying, But Zion said, and this is verse 14, But Zion said, The Lord hath forsaken me, and my Lord hath forgotten me. And then this question is asked, Can a woman forget her sucking child, that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb. Yea, they may forget, yet will I not forget thee. Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. Thy walls are continually before me. 
the church of God, the people of God, do feel at times that the Lord has forsaken them. And our Lord is going through this experience so that he will be a sympathising high priest over the church of God and that which he is uttering is what he is feeling in this darkness over the land, the darkness in his soul, the complete cloud and instead of during his ministry, that fellowship, that communion with his father, there's a cloud over all of that. Again, we must say, there must be a distinction here between the human and the divine. When our Lord speaks in uh, the 13th of, of Mark, he is telling of what is the end of the world, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. But he says, but of that day and that hour, knoweth no man, no, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. And there are several other places where there is with the Lord a voluntary giving up of the knowledge that he had of the divine, part of his humbling himself and becoming obedient unto death, part of being a man, that he should walk in a way dependent upon the revelation of his Father. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life, and uh, the, the commandment that was given him of his Father, and he speaks of those things, he is speaking to them that he has heard of his Father. And... Again, it's this idea we can, in our minds, lessen the sufferings of the Lord if we say, well, his divinity was so supporting his humanity that he can never be tried like this. He can never be in such darkness as this. He can never have such a veil and such a barrier that he feels that God has forsaken him. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Great is the mystery of godliness, God manifest in the flesh. And it's so hard for us to, to really enter into and to know of the sufferings and the path that our Lord has walked. We know that the reality of that which he is enduring here enters deeper than any, any child of God could ever feel it so to be. And I want to really just on this point, is comparing our Lord and his people, that there's that assurance that the Lord will never forsake his church, but our Lord Jesus Christ has endured that in himself that his church should never endure my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So severe and so real to bring forth this cry. In some ways we might say, had God really forsaken his beloved son, to forsake one is to cast off completely and utterly and never ever come back again. 
But our Lord was fulfilling and going through this for his dear people. And he must in his soul endure what they would endure for eternity if he hadn't suffered in their place. I would in no wise lessen the suffering and what our Lord is feeling at this time and may we really be humbled under account of what our Lord asks in this way. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why this darkness? Why cannot I not commune with thee? Why cannot I see thee? Why cannot I hear thee? Why is it that is if completely forsaken on his own? I want to look then in the third place at the answer to this question, why? The first is this, that he is fulfilling scripture. The scriptures cannot be broken. We read in Psalm 22, the very opening words are the words of our text. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It is without doubt this is a messianic psalm because we read in verses uh, uh, 16 to 18, For dogs have compassed me, that is, the Gentiles, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me, they pierce my hands and my feet, I may tell all my bones, they look and stare upon me, they part my garments among them and cast lots for my vesture. But be not thou far from me, O Lord, O my strength, haste thee to help me. It is very clearly foretelling the sufferings of our Lord, his very utterances, the fact that his bones were not broken, but the thieves each side were, the fact that they pierced his hands and his feet, the fact that they did not uh, divide the, his garment, they, they parted the garments, but his vesture, they cast lots for it. They said, let us not rend it, but cast lots. This psalm was penned a thousand years before Christ uttered these words. I've no doubt that it is the experience of David, the psalmist, as well as feeling forsaken, but it is, I would say, first and foremost, a prophecy of the Lord. If we look past that, we, we look past what the message of the psalm is. It is describing the sufferings of our Lord upon the cross. And as we've often said, the psalms are that which looks at the inward man, at the soul, and what is going on inwardly. Many times, like Psalm 34, we're told about the outward circumstances that are happening when David was with before Abimelech, feared for his life. And we read in Psalm 34, this poor man cried and the Lord hurt him, saved him out of all his troubles. We know again that is another psalm that's speaking of Christ who we're told what David was going through during that time and then what he's going through his soul. And here there is what he's going through but we're not told David's circumstances but we know it answers exactly to our Lord's. And so this is why we read that psalm together. But that is not the only uh, place we read also in the uh, prophecies, the prophecy of Zechariah and chapter 14. And we read there, It shall come to pass in that day, verse 6, that the light shall not be clear nor dark, but it shall be one day which shall be known to the Lord, not day nor night, 
but it shall come to pass that at evening time it shall be light. And of course that which is an eclipse or a complete darkness, it was in the daytime. It wasn't night time. But in the daytime it was like night time because of the darkness. And I feel it's very clear from the context in Zechariah what day that that is. Because in verse 8 we read, and it shall be in that day or at that time of what's been done that living waters shall go out from Jerusalem, half of them towards the former sea, that's the Jews, half of them towards the hinder sea, that's the Gentiles, in summer and winter shall it be, and the Lord shall be king over all the earth. This is the gospel, the gospel of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, and it's going forth from Calvary. And so the, the darkness that was over the land at that time was also foretold, the same as the very words of our Lord. So why, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Fulfilling scripture, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. The second thing is that he was made sin for us. Paul tells the Corinthians that he was made sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. It testifies the reality of sin laid upon him. It was also known in the Garden of Gethsemane before he came to the judgment hall and to the cross. We read that he was separated from the disciples and for a short distance and there he fell upon the ground, sweat great drops of blood, was sore amazed. An angel appeared strengthening him became very evident of a weight, a great weight laid upon him. Thou hast laid upon him the iniquity of us all. It's one thing to have that iniquity and the sins of his people laid upon him. But it's another that he must then be made sin for us to suffer under that sin in the type of the uh, scapegoat then on one or on both goats there was confessed all the sins of the people one was taken into the land of forgetfulness telling of the sins of the people put away forever but the other was on the goat that was slain his blood was shed now Lord Jesus Christ in putting away the sin of his people he must endure the sufferings that was due to them. He was made sin. We had the reality of the sin laid on him in Gethsemane. We had the reality in the judgment hall when Pilate, many were accusing him. And as a lamb before her shearers is done, so he opened not his mouth. Our Lord knew for whom he stood. He knew the sins. Pilate could say, I see no cause of death in him. No, he couldn't. But our Lord knew for what cause that he must die and lay down his life. And so this, the very showing forth of the greatness of the weight of sin that was upon him, it must be so that he should feel what sin really is. Because in the third place, God hates sin. God hates sin. He cannot look upon sin, but without utter abhorrence. And here is his beloved son made sin, and he hides his face from him. There is that barrier. What child of God does not know the barrier that sin makes between them and their God? What one doesn't know 
what happened when Adam sinned and was cast out of the garden and there was that fellowship broken. Sin separates. Without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. But we are sinners. And when our Lord stood in that place, God's hatred against sin was against him as he bore that sin. So not only was God's hatred shown in this, that his beloved Son must say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The answer in part is because God hates sin. But then we have another answer, and that is that not only is this God's hatred of sin, but in all that is happening here, it is God's wrath against sin. We read God is angry with the wicked every day. But if God is not angry with his people, then he is angry with the substitute and the wrath of God is upon him. We read in John's first epistle in chapter 2, in verse 2, he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but also for the sins of the whole world. That is not every man, woman and child but the sins of every nation and kindred and tongue. And what is that? Propitiation is a wrath-ending sacrifice. It takes away wrath. It extinguishes wrath. It, it puts it on the substitute so that it will not rest then upon those for whom he is standing. So our Lord is feeling at this time that brings forth this cry, the wrath of God against sin. Let us go back to the Old Testament. Let us picture what it was at the time of Noah's flood when the wrath of God was poured out upon the world that then was, and all perished except those that were in the ark. But what was happening to the ark? The ark was borne up on the water. The waters were pouring over the ark. The ark was bearing all what was being cast at the world but keeping safe all of those that were within it. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the ark for his people. But what a picture of the wrath of God. What a picture of the wrath of God against those of Sodom and Gomorrah. Complete, utter destruction. And the land went up like the burning of a furnace and our Lord endured that wrath in these hours upon the cross I would say here what without these utterances if we took this question away from the other six sayings What would give us that real picture of the inward sufferings of our Lord? What would convey to us God's hatred of sin, his wrath against sin? Although we might say a verse or two in scripture that has so much in it so much to meditate and to think upon. Another thing that he was enduring was the curse. Cursed is everyone that hangeth upon a tree. Why such a strange, obscure law to be put in the laws of the children of Israel? But it points that the Lord Jesus Christ hung on a tree, crucified, 
was made a curse for us who knew no sin. Our Lord's utterance in this is showing the reality of the curse met upon him. What was on his head? A crown of thorns. What was said to Adam concerning the ground? Thorns also it shall bring forth unto thee. And our Lord had those thorns pressed into his head. He was removing the curse, bearing the curse for his people, expressed as well in these words, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why this darkness, separation? Why this terrible agony of soul? Our Lord not only was removing the curse, he was paying the debt, settling the debt that his people owed, a debt that they could not pay. The Lord demands a perfect debt, a perfect payment for that debt. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And all the sacrifices that had gone before, they all set that forth, that there must be the shedding of blood. But then there was the trial of faith. Now you might say, and many theologians over history have always asked this question, did the Lord Jesus Christ have faith? Did he need faith? We're told in Hebrews, faith is a substance of things hoped for, those things not seen as yet. If he was truly God, then he knew everything. It's the same as when we get to heaven, it's, we no, no longer need faith because we see clearly. Faith is turned to signs. But here below we do need faith. And again I believe it is that voluntary entering into the paths of his people. Of course it is in a different way. Faith is a trust. Remember one of the things that was cast at our Lord on the cross here. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him. The Jews bear witness that Jesus of Nazareth trusted in God. We know for his people he is the author and finisher of our faith. And we know in Hebrews as well that without faith it is impossible to please God for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Our Lord in all his life as a man here below, pleased God in everything that he did. He pleased his Father. When our Lord walked to the boat over the sea and Peter said, If it be thou, let me come to thee. Then he began to come, but then he began to sink. And the Lord ascribed it to a lack of faith. When he cursed the fig tree, and the fig tree shriveled up, then again the Lord referred to it that if they had faith, that they could do the same. And if they had faith as a grain of mustard seed, then they could say to a mountain, be it removed and cast into the sea, and it would obey them. Can we think as a man, our Lord Jesus Christ would have had that perfect faith, perfect trust, not as God, not as divine, but as the God-man. Just the same as his righteousness. He had a righteousness that 
belong to his divinity, that which can never be imparted or given to another. But a righteousness which is to be imparted and given to his people. And that belongs to his humanity. And so also with faith, we would remember as well that in Hebrews we are told that the sufferings of our Lord was so that he could sympathise with his people. At the end of chapter 2 in Hebrews, we read, Verily he took not on him the nature of angels, which is spirit only, but he took on him the seed of Abraham, which is spirit and flesh. He didn't take on him the seed of animals, that is just flesh, Wherefore in all things it behoved him to be made like unto his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. This is what he was doing upon the cross. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted or tried he is able to succour them that are tempted. He was tempted, he was tried by Satan, if thou art the Son of God. But then this upon the cross as well. What child of God does not know the severity of the trial of faith, where they are in heaviness, when their faith is tried, when the Lord hides his face from them, when they walk in darkness and they cannot see any light. The word says, let him trust in the name of the Lord. Well, here is our Lord walking this path. And yet in the midst of this trial, he is still saying, my God, my God. In one sense, you would think, if, if, if the reality of this trial, can he still say, my God? He does. And what an encouragement that is for us. However dark we may be, we are assured in Scripture, he that hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. And what we read there in Isaiah 49, the Lord assures his people he will not forsake them. And though they feel forsaken, though they feel the darkness, though they feel the separation, with our Lord they still cry, My God, my God. You think of the psalmist in Psalm 42 and 43. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why art thou disquieted within me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him as the health of my countenance and my God. And so here in the trial of faith, he's making those utterances like his dear people will in their trials and then in their path that they walk as well. Feeling forsaken did not dissolve that union between the Father and the Son. May we think of that as well. Though we may feel forsaken, it does not dissolve the union, which is an everlasting union. Thine they were, thou gavest them me. I have loved thee with an everlasting love, and therefore with loving kindness have I drawn thee, chosen in him from the foundation of the world. All of these things, don't rule out that the child of God will not feel that times such darkness, such a trial, such a feeling forsaken that the Lord is not with them. They cannot see his goings. You hear Job, Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come here unto his seat. He couldn't find the Lord, looked on one hand and looked on the other, he couldn't find him. 
You think of John the Baptist. Art thou he that should come? Or look we for another? There he is in prison. Not long before his, he dies, had his head removed with the executioner's axe. And the Lord sent by his disciples to assure him, tell him of all of those things that were still being done, the miracles done, the poor having the gospel preached to them. The Lord's dear people know that path that the Lord here endures that he might be a sympathising high priest. He is, you might say as well, the bruising of his heel, not just outwardly, but inwardly as well. When our Lord was tempted by Satan after those 40 days, we read that he leaveth him for a season. We don't have any marked times after that in our Lord's ministry where Satan attacked in that severity as in the desert just after his baptising. But we do read here of such darkness, such a bruising of our Lord's heel. How vital it is for us to, in thinking of faith and for our path in faith is to think of what the faith actually is that we are given. There's a very interesting and I might say very solemn difference between the King James Version Bible and the ESV. And it is in Romans chapter 3. Those are, or the part of the reading that, a piece that I read that was highlighted this, was from those that were actually agreeing with the ESV. And it is in verse 21 and verse 22. We read, But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. The ESV reads, Through faith, in Jesus Christ. Now it's true that we do have faith in Jesus Christ. But those that were commenting on it made that point. They said, well, if you believe that faith is a gift of God, then you will agree with the King James Version. Because what the King James Version is saying is that it is by faith of Jesus Christ. In other words, the gift given by the Lord. Answering to that in Hebrews 12, our Lord is the author and finisher of our faith. And the word tells us all men have not faith. Faith is not something that all men have, that all they've got to do is to exercise it upon the Lord Jesus Christ, or in Christ. That is what those that favour the ESV version are saying. That is what, why they prefer that way of it, because they are saying that faith is not a gift, it's a duty, and we can exercise that faith in Christ. Know that faith is sovereignly given. By grace ye are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And that is how our accurate version declares it. By faith of Jesus Christ. And we need to remember that. Our Lord Jesus Christ, as the Jews said, they trusted in God. But we are given a faith by the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Him who suffered, endured in our place, whose faith in God, trust in God was tried to the uttermost. He gives to his people faith at the new birth, at the time they are born again. And that faith then does centre in Christ, but it is faith of Jesus Christ. It is a gift from him. And when we come and we think of the utterance of our Lord upon the cross and the sufferings that he endured as being made sin for us and to walk the path, shall it be said that God has said his people shall walk through faith by faith here below but our Lord Jesus Christ has no idea in experience what that is to walk by faith. That he cannot sympathise with any trials we have by faith, but he can. He's given us that faith and he also has had his own faith, own trust, tried in such a way and maintain in such a way our Lord dwells so much upon faith saying to Peter I prayed for thee that thy faith fail not my God my God why hast thou forsaken me in all of our trials our spiritual trials in all of what we go through may we be able to trace it Write to our Lord and truly believe and understand. He does know. He does understand. He has endured the wrath of God for our sin. He has taken away the curse. He has paid the debt. And this is the testimony of it as he does it. And the seal of it is the empty tomb, the risen Saviour. May the Lord then bless this word, give us that further meditation upon it. I realise I've raised some things this evening that even those who have been long in the way and theologians, they, they reason and argue, argue over. It is a deep, it's a great deep, the mystery of God. God manifest in the flesh and none greater at such a time when he endured the wrath of God for our sins. Here is sin put away for all of the people of God here at Calvary. We look no other place, no other one to do it for us, but Christ alone. And we might say as well, this coming to the very end of our Lord's life, he was still working out a righteousness to give to his people, to impart to us the Lord our righteousness. May the Lord then add his blessing. Amen.